Yes, yes, yes. The surprising thing for many people is that a man of my stature, um, this good looks, would have been 36 when he got married. Uh, it was kind of later in life. And, you know, for quite a while, I was a youth pastor. And some of my students, or even a teacher after that, and some of my students would often want to set me up with someone. And so they were concerned about the fact that I was still single. And um, in the course of conversation with them, often what would take place is, you know, they said, well, if you ever, you know, do get married, would you consider getting divorced? And I said, you know, there'd be one thing that would probably lead to me divorcing my wife if I were ever to marry, and that is if she were unfaithful. If she cheated on me, I would likely divorce her. That is the natural inclination of my heart, and I believe knowing that that is the inclination of my heart, it kind of makes the text that we're reading from this morning all the more powerful for me. I'm reading from Hosea chapter 2, beginning at verse 6 and concluding at verse 16. This is the word of our God. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her, her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bells. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers, but me she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of Egypt. And that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel during a time of great prosperity financially and with regards to its military. But Israel was by no means a spiritually prosperous nation. 
Just the opposite, in fact, they were morally corrupt. And so as something of an object lesson, God calls Hosea in chapter 1, verse 2, to marry an unfaithful wife. Hosea's experience with his wife Gomer demonstrates the close link that exists between adultery and idolatry. When a husband and a wife take their wedding vows, they are making a lifelong commitment to remain faithful to each other. Cheating on one's spouse transgresses the marital bond through the act of adultery. In the same way, God calls his people to make a lifelong commitment to him. When God's people choose to exalt something above him, they cheat on God through something we call idolatry. In marrying a harlot, Hosea identified with the Lord's personal pain as well as the Lord's steadfastness. I believe that Hosea, more than any other Old Testament prophet, could actually relate to God's faithfulness to a faithless people. The Lord called Hosea to deal with the heartache of seeing his wife Gomer go back into the ring of prostitution. Having married her, having brought her out of whoredom, she had returned to a lifestyle of harlotry. The parallel to God and his people is uncanny. God deals with the heartache of his covenantal people whom he had delivered out of Egyptian bondage, returning to the idol worship of their former slave owners. In the time of Hosea, they bowed before the Assyrian fertility god Baal, ascribing the prosperity as a people to this false deity. Hosea's 2 verse 5, we did not read, but it tells us why Gomer and God's people chose infidelity. They said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Breaking this one verse down reveals several nuggets of truth that I think explains our cause of waywardness. First, people often choose unfaithfulness in the pursuit of personal pleasure. Some husbands, for instance, break the covenantal bond with their wives by looking at lewd pictures on a computer screen. Second, people may allow the pursuit of personal gain or success to interfere with their first love. They buy into the love, that the, they buy into the lie that the things of this world will give them a greater sense of satisfaction. We can somehow cause ourselves to believe in God, but at the same time say, well, really, we're worshiping the shrine of power, our prosperity, our possessions, our position. And third, individuals can easily attribute fulfillment in life to another lover, like a person, or an object, or a hobby. They place such things on par with the worship of the Lord. Oh, I can go hunting and worship God just as easily as I can worship Him 
in the sanctuary. Finally, Lloyd J. Ogilvy writes, even the church is not exempt from the subtle and sometimes blatant sin of syncretism. We add onto our worship of the Lord our devotion to heritage, traditions, numbers, buildings, and programs. The point to be made is how we all fail at times to see God as the true fount of blessing in our lives. The point to be made is how easy it is to buy in to the subtleties of the world's false gods all around us. The point to be made is the peril that comes when we lose sight of the centrality of Christ by fixing our focus on far lesser things. So it is in the backdrop of all of this that we come to the first therefore in verse 6. The infidelity of God's people ultimately leads to disillusionment. The narrative reads somewhat reminiscent of an old cartoon. Maybe you remember it. Roadrunner. Right? Yet Wiley Coyote, and he is chasing this bird all over the desert. You know, and just when you think Wiley is going to get his prey, you know, you, he's right on his tail, and that blue bird will go beep beep, and there'll be like this black patch on the side of a boulder, and Roadrunner will dart right through it. And then while the coyote hits that black patch on the boulder, bam, and he falls flat on his back. The fact of the matter is, is that the designer of that cartoon was not going to let Wiley Coyote overtake his roadrunner. In the same way, the designer of the covenant is not going to let his covenant people overtake their roadrunners. What earthly thing, what worldly pursuit do you have the tendency to place ahead of your relationship with God or on par with your relationship with God? In whatever way you answer that question, you have identified your roadrunner. Is it success? Is it popularity? Is it appearance? Is it sex? Is it wealth? Is it athletics? What might it be? Whenever we chase after these roadrunners, we lose sight of the source of that which is good and that which is lovely. It is always misplaced praise for us to think of a person or a group or an institution or a job or an accomplishment or a substance or a philosophy. To ever think one of those things could somehow fulfill us. Because ultimately they will leave us empty. God will block us in. He will wall us in. He is not going to let his people pollute his glory. How does the Lord do that? 
How does he bring us to our senses? How does he disillusion us? Well, the second, therefore, answers that for us. He does so through discipline. When I was about seven years old, um, I wanted a super-duper swing set. You know, it was kind of like the video games of today in some regard. Um, One of the neighborhood kids had a swing set in his backyard, and he had become kind of the popular kid in the neighborhood because everybody wanted to play on his swing set. Well, I wanted a better one. I wanted me a super-duper swing set, so I said to my dad, Dad, I need a swing set. He said, well, it's not your birthday, it's not Christmas, but I tell you what, if you do all the chores that I ask you to do over the summer, I might consider it. And so I was diligent. I didn't even complain about pulling weeds. And it was near the end of summer, my dad comes, he wakes me from my slumber, and he says that a swing set was going to be put in our backyard. But he said, son, you cannot play on it today. You must let it cement in the ground. I said, yes, sir. But it proved much harder than I thought. When I'm outside, you know, we had a little basketball go in our driveway. I'm shooting ball, and some neighborhood boys start coming by, and the luster of the swing set. Oh, it's beautiful. And before you know it, guess what? We are sliding and climbing and having a blast of a time until, of course, bam, the swing set fell. And where were all the friends that had gathered around to play? They were gone. (laughs) They were gone. That's right, Jack. They were gone as fast as Roadrunner. I was left alone to face the judgment of my father. And you know, the the thing about it was, yes, my derriere burned from the belt that I received, but I was crying in my bed, not because I got a spanking, but because that which I had worked so hard for, that which was my cause for celebration was in shambles on the ground. Now, if you pay attention to what is going on here in Hosea, they basically had a really nice swing set. At the time, they were very prosperous. And so Assyria was like, yes, we want to be friends with you. You've got prosperity. But God says, I'm going to reveal your nakedness in front of your lovers. And all of a sudden, when they have nothing, what's going to happen to Assyria? They're going to be gone too. They want nothing to do with Israel because Israel is not prosperous any longer. And so God announces in Hosea 2, verse 11, I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. 
their cause for celebration would be gone. The prosperity that they falsely attributed to Baal came from the hand of God. But Israel had ignored that. The end of verse 13, our modern translations don't capture the magnitude of it. It's powerful. It is a double emphatic in the Hebrew language. But me, me, she forgot. God knows what it's like to be cheated on. And it breaks his heart. I return now to the manner in which I responded to those students when they would ask me if I would ever consider getting a divorce if she cheated on me. If she were unfaithful. I would divorce you. <laughs> That's what I expect. That's what I deserve from God. But that's not what I get. You gotta look at the third, therefore. It's so beautiful. Because it points us to his redeeming love. It's kind of fitting that I'm preaching on this text right now with Francine Rivers' adaptation of the book of Hosea coming out in theaters, Redeeming Love. It is a fitting title. Hear once more the third therefore that God whispers. It is the whisper of his unrelenting grace. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of Egypt. Literally, the Hebrew meaning is that God would speak to the heart of his backslidden people. It is the same expression that you would find in courtship. It is the same expression that you would find in communicating to the weary or to the downtrodden. The reference to Achor, it comes from an account in Joshua chapter 7, verses 24 to 26. And Achor literally means trouble. God is promising to turn the Israelites' valley of trouble into a door of hope. D.G. Barnhouse tells a story that I think helps illustrate this process. Some fishermen were at sea when a terrible storm kind of came upon them suddenly. And so they knew they needed to go back to shore, and they headed back that way. And as they were going back, the lighthouse was struck by lightning, and the light of the lighthouse went out. All of a sudden, here they were in the extreme darkness, the storm beating down upon them, and the captain of the ship was faced with a 
tremendous decision. What was he going to do? And he made the decision that the best chance they had to survive was to at least try to dock in the dark, knowing that he ran the risk of crashing into the rocks. And just before they got to the point of no return, there was a fire that blazed in the distance and the captain was able to steer the ship away from the rocks that he was going to crash into back to the dock. And as all the individuals were getting off of the boat, one particular seaman saw his wife and his two children and he went to them in the pouring down rain and then he saw his wife was weeping profusely and he said, honey, it's okay, I'm okay. She said, you don't understand. Everything that we have burned with our home. And he said, you don't understand. Had our house not burned, I would not be here now. God tends to work that way. He opens doors of hope from even our darkest of valleys. And we all have our valleys of Acor, don't we? We can all think about those times in our lives of profound sin and failure. We can all remember those times where we have said, I will never do that again. And yet we have. And yet from the storms of our waywardness, which leads to the brink of destruction, God sets afire his redeeming love at the cross of Calvary. We simply need to look afresh upon the cross and find our way home. And that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. That declaration reminds me so much of perhaps a familiar parable to us. It is the parable that has commonly been called the parable of the prodigal son. He squanders his inheritance, the inheritance that he had asked from his father while his father was yet still alive, basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have all that I would gain if that were the case. And so his father had given him his inheritance early. And as you know, the son goes off into the city and he squanders it and famine falls upon the land and he's forced to eat from the sty of pigs. And he thinks to himself, wow, it would be much better to even be a servant in my father's house than this. I, I will go back. I will tell my father I have sinned against you. I have sinned against God. Take me back as a servant in your home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. In a roundabout way, the father in the parable reiterates Hosea 2, verse 16. You'll not call me master. You'll call me daddy. 
It is why Pastor Tim Keller suggests that the church may have misnamed this story. Perhaps it should not be called the parable of the prodigal son at all. Perhaps it should be called the parable of the prodigal father. Because the word prodigal means recklessly wasteful. Certainly the son is reckless and wasteful with his monetary inheritance. But the father is reckless and wasteful with the love that he lavishes upon his returning son. The fact of the matter is that our heavenly father stands ready to forgive and welcome his wayward children home. The gospel hymn, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling, captures this message like this. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon. Pardon for you and for me. Come home. Come home. Weary sinner, come home. If you are burdened under the weight of some sin and the Holy Spirit is drawing you today, won't you turn to Jesus? If you already have a relationship with Christ, but you are chasing after some roadrunner and you know that you are, won't you stop running? And turn back to God. Run home to the Father. Keller says Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. prodigal father who lavishes upon us such love. Have you ever run away from God? Of course you have. And has he not always taken you back? Of course he has. That's the God we serve. It is a God whose grace is unrelenting. He will never give up on you. He will never stop pursuing us through his disillusioning, disciplining, redeeming love. I would ask that we would all stop and pause and consider for just a moment what we would do if time and time and time and time again the one to whom we were wed cheated on us. What would we do? And then stop and consider what God does. He deserves our devotion. He deserves our love. And he's calling today. Weary sinner, 
come home. Pray with me. Lord God, we, um, we are such a faithless people. We say we'll never raise our voice in anger like that again, and we do. We say we will never use that word again, and we do. We say we will never put this or that ahead of you again, and we do. And time and time again, you lavish us with your reckless love. Your unrelenting grace. If someone here today needs to get right with you, they can come to the altar, they can do it right where they are. All we need to do is say, Lord Christ, forgive me. Strengthen me. Lead me again into my first love. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.